Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Join us this Sunday at one of our four campuses. Call times are at 9 and 11 a.m. at our Somerville and Remount campuses, 10 a.m. at our North Charleston campus, and 11 a.m. at our Monk's Corner campus. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Larry Burbacher. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit faithishere.org. All right, welcome, Faith. Good to see you guys today. How many had a great 4th of July with your family, friends? A wonderful day to celebrate our freedom, our independence, and it's good to see you guys here at church this morning. Take your Bibles out. Turn to Romans chapter 11. We are in our series on the book of Romans right now, and this portion is entitled Life Inverted because when Christ comes in, everything turns upside down. How many know that? It's not the same as usual, not life as usual. Everything about it gets crazy and wild because we're now followers and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at a very uh, challenging passage of Scripture this morning, Romans chapter 11. And so keep your fingers there. We'll get to it in just a moment. For the life inverted uh, clip portion of Romans, we've got this uh, roller coaster going around. How many like roller coasters? Let me see your hand. I, I, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, it was just south of Kings Island. Anybody ever been to Kings Island in Cincinnati? Pretty awesome amusement park, all kinds of rides. Now, now I love roller coasters today. I like to get on them and take the big drops and do all that twists and turns and all that kind of stuff. But when I was a kid, I didn't. I was terrified, petrified. But one thing that got me over my, my insecurity of roller coaster rides was I went to the amusement parks about the time I was 16 years of age. About four of us went one day, and we're going to spend the whole day at Kings Island, just four guys hanging out, riding the rides. The only thing greater than my fear of death was fear of being made fun of. How many know I got on that roller coaster? I could not be called a sissy and a wimp and, a, and a whatever else they were going to call me the rest of the day. I had to get on that roller coaster. And the roller coaster had just opened up, uh, I think early that year, it was called The Beast. It was a wooden roller coaster. At that time, it was the highest and the fastest and most turns and the craziest wooden roller coaster in the world. It was right there at Kings Island. Now, it's, now there's all kinds of coasters that have passed that up. But I, I, they, they taught me to do it. I got in the beast. And, and, I, and you're standing in that line. And you're, you're telling yourself, why am I doing this? This is insane. This is nuts. And, and my heart's racing. It's going nuts. And then you get on that track. And it goes click, 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 click. You know that feeling? And you can't get off. There's nothing you can do. And all of a sudden, you get over the top of that crest and straight down, it goes like 90 miles, 90, I don't know what it was, 70, 65 miles. It feels like you're flying and you're dropping over that precipice and you're going straight down. And then you turn and twist and upside, all kinds of things, not, not upside down on that one, but others. And that's kind of the way life can be sometimes. Life can be like a roller coaster. You don't know where the turns are coming from. Now I've ridden all kinds of roller coasters all across the country, and the ones that will really freak you out are the ones in the dark. Because you don't know, you're in the dark, you can't see where it's going, and it's inside, and lights are flashing here and there, and all of a sudden, you're going along and it just drops, and you didn't know the drop was coming, or it goes to the right, or it goes to the left, and you don't know where that coaster is going to go next. And I think sometimes, as we journey through this life, it can be like a roller coaster ride. But here's the bottom line. It always is going to arrive safely at the end. 
and you're going to land on that platform, and you're going to get off, and everybody's going to be waiting to get in line and jump on that coaster right after you get off of it. And you are, I'm cool. I can handle that. No sweat. I got it. I made it. It's fun. I have my hands up. You know, I'm like, I put my hands up, whatever, and all of a sudden, as soon as we hit that hill, they go right back down. But, but that's the way life is. It's crazy like that. But here's the thing that that Paul wants us to understand, and I think it's going to begin to come out in Romans chapter 11, is that in the midst of all the twists and the turns and the inversions and the upside downs and the drops and the highs and the lows, God never changes. And, and, And he's going to show us in Romans 11 that God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his word. And he's going to use Israel as an example of this. He's going to show what God started in the nation of Israel. He's going to bring it to completion. It's going to come about. It is going to take place. It is going to happen. So he uses the nation of Israel. Now, now here's keep in mind, we've, well, Paul's writing to the Roman church. Probably the Roman church is primarily Gentile, although there were Jews there as well. But, but this early church in the city of Rome that he writes to in AD 57 is primarily Gentile believers. And there's this thing going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles may have thought in their minds, uh, now that we are coming into grace, now that Israel for the most part has rejected their Messiah, they have rejected the Lord, and and now we're the ones coming in, we're the ones coming to find the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, When God opened the door of salvation, uh, the question in their mind is, is he done with the nation of Israel? And he answers that question in Romans chapter 11. So let's stand together as we look at it. Israel have rejected their Messiah. Their eyes were blinded. But Paul begins to explain what is happening here, what is going on. And he says, they were blinded, they were disciplined by God so that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in. Uh, And so the question is, is God done with Israel? And, And he says, resounding, no. God still has a plan for national Israel. And so let's take a look at it in verse number one. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed down their knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel so earnestly did not obtain, but the elect did. Others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they could not see, and ears that they could not hear to this very day. Father, I pray today as we open up your word, you'll open up our hearts. We need your help this morning. I need that anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. I I can't do this on my own, Lord Jesus. And open up our ears and our minds and our hearts that we'll receive what you have for us today. I thank you for the power of your word. Encourage us this morning in your word. And we give you praise and glory and honor in Jesus' mighty name. 
Amen. Turn to someone and say, I'm glad I'm an American, and then you may be seated. Has God rejected Israel? Paul gives a resounding no. God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And he's going to give a couple examples right here in these first seven verses, first five verses. The first example is an example of himself. He says, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. Used to persecute the church, uh, destroy them. Look, if you would, at Acts chapter 22. He, he begins, to, he describes in Acts when he's given his defense. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia. Brought up in this city, I studied under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into the prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. He says, I am the chief of sinners. I was a Jew, I had the highest pedigree, I was a Pharisee, that's as high as you can get. I studied under Gamaliel, who is the top teacher in all of Israel, of all the Pharisees. I am at the top of the food chain, I am the best of the best, I am Jewish to the core. And he says, look at me, I'm saved today. And if he's saying, in essence, if God can save me by his grace, he can save anybody. Isn't that good news today? God can save anybody. I don't care what you may have done, where you may have gone, who you may have hurt along the way. God's grace is good for you today. And he says, if God could save me, then does that mean God was finished with the nation of Israel? I'm a living, breathing witness that God will always have a remnant of followers who will follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he He jumps on down and he gives a second illustration, and that's that of Elijah. Now, Elijah, his story's fascinating. Elijah comes along. Ahab and Jezebel are ruling in the land. Israel has gone apostate. They have turned their back once again on God. They're serving the gods of Baal and Asherah. And, and they're following these gods and bowing down to them and worshiping them. Uh, the, the god Baal was the Canaanite storm god, and the god Asherah was the sea goddess. And so they're worshiping these gods. And so uh, Elijah sees the apostasy in the land, and he prays, and God shuts up the heaven for three and a half years. And now there's a drought in the land, followed by a famine in the land, and all this is going on. Uh, and, and, and now Ahab and, Elijah, uh, Ahab and Jezebel blame Elijah, and they have this confrontation. There's going to be a meeting on top of Mount Carmel, and God is going to send revival, and he's going to use Elijah to bring that revival. And so these 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, they build their altar. And he says, the God who answers by fire is the God we're going to serve. And so they begin to dance, and they begin to do their jig around that idol, around that sacrifice they had made. They, they chanted, they cut themselves and, and let their blood out. They did all they could. And, and Elijah's kind, he's really cool. He just stands back and makes fun of them. He says, well, cry a little louder. Maybe your God's asleep. Uh, maybe he's off going to the bathroom somewhere. You've got you to read between the lines. That's in the, in the Hebrew language there. Maybe he's on vacation somewhere. 
and he mocks and makes fun of them, and finally, after pure exhaustion, they give up, and Elijah steps up, and now it's his turn. He rolls up his sleeves and brings some water out. Now there's a drought. They haven't drunk water in a long time. I want you to pour water around the altar and all over the altar. They do this a couple of different times, and then he prays a short prayer, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And all the people bow down and they say, the Lord God, he is God. He is the one we're going to serve. They they gather around, they surround those false prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. They kill them on the spot. Now, this is an incredible, mighty, powerful victory. But something happens. Jezebel issues a death warrant on Elijah's head. And I'm going to find him, and I'm going to kill him. And Elijah does something after winning this great battle and great victory on the mountaintop. After this incredible spiritual high, now he's running for his life. And we find him in a cave all by himself. Uh, and, 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 he, and he says something like this. Turn to 1 Kings 19, and we'll put it on the screen for you as well. He says this. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars, put the prophets to death with a sword. He says, I only, I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now, now the right, Paul, when he writes Romans 11, he includes this portion of the verse in Romans 11. He quotes this Old Testament scripture from 1 Kings chapter 19. He says, I am the only one that is left. It's amazing how loneliness and self-pity, and depression, all can combine to work together. And we've been there. I tell you what, the best parties I've ever thrown in my life are pity parties. It's a party of one. It's all about me. It's all about what's gone wrong. It's all about what I'm going through, and we throw these incredibly great Pity parties. And if we are not careful, when we go through a trial or that roller coaster turns right or left and we weren't ready for it or there's this colossal drop along the way, immediately we begin to feel sorry for ourselves and what we think is, I'm the only one going through this. It's like, God, what have I done? Why are you out to get me? I'm doing the best I can and I lost my job. I'm trying to serve you and follow you, and now my my wife's done this, or my husband's done this, or this relationship is falling apart right all around me as we speak right now. God, what's going on? Why are these turns and twists happening along the way? I am the only one that is left. And the enemy just kind of amplifies those thoughts in your brain and in your mind. First of all, you're never alone. Because the Bible says the Lord himself is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And if you are in Christ Jesus, I don't care what you're going through, he's with you. He'll help you. He'll see you through. On top of that, he says, you know what, Elijah? I've got 7,000 others throughout the nation of Israel who have not yet bowed down to Baal. God will always have a remnant. And this is the point Paul is driving cross. I've got my remnant. I've got my people. There are those that have been set apart by me that are following me, serving me, living for me. There are those who have not yet been bowed down to Baal. Now, of all the illustrations Paul could use here to talk about the remnant of Israel, he uses Elijah. And I believe there's two reasons. I want you to jot these down. Number one, he's trying to tell 
the Romans, who are about to themselves go through all kinds of persecution, you're not alone. God will have a remnant. I don't care where you're at and what you're going through, God will always have a remnant that will follow him. God has an army who will place their faith in God, who will trust in the promises of God, who are fighting the good fight of faith. God always has a remnant. Can you say amen? The outward appearance may suggest there's no hope left. The majority opinion may be anti-God. And you may feel like you're all by yourself. But the majority opinion doesn't represent the true Israel. It doesn't represent God's covenant remnant people. The majority may rule against us. America will go through persecution. Supreme Court rulings will be handed down. The majority may dance and laugh and clap and sing, but the majority opinion doesn't represent the true remnant of God. God will always have a remnant who will stand in the midst of immorality and adversity and persecution and hardship and difficulty and storm. God will always have his remnant. And the second thing this illustration tells us, and he's beginning to lead us up to this, he'll spell it out a little bit in the next portion of this chapter, but he's also beginning to say, through the example of Elijah, is God isn't through with Israel. And he goes on in that scripture I read to you earlier, 1 Kings 19, look at verse 15. He says in verse 15, I have been very, uh, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, over Israel. Anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from, from Abel Molaha, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Now what is he telling Elijah? Not only are you not alone, but I've still got work for you to do. I've got a job for you to do. You've got to find another king. You've got to find another prophet, but I've got work for you to do. Don't stop. Don't quit now. And that's a good message for all of us. Don't ever, ever give up. Don't ever stop turning the Lord. Don't turn away from him. Don't ever stop serving him. I don't care what age you are, we don't retire from God's ministry. We're all in service to God. And he says, Elisha, not only are you not alone, but I still have work for you to do. Hallelujah. Israel has always had a remnant all the way throughout history. In spite of unbelievable persecution, Israel itself, the fact that they're right now in the center of the Middle East at the crossroads between Africa and Europe and Asia, and they're right there at that country, and God brought them together from all over. They have been scattered under persecution. They have been taken into captivity on numerous occasions. They become a nation. Uh, Hitler tries to destroy the nation of Israel and wipe them out and exterminate them, but Israel is God's little miracle sitting right now, right in the Middle East. Uh, they They are the prosperous country. They are a strong, powerful nation. They are the only fully functioning democracy in the Middle East right now today. God has always had his hand on the nation of Israel. And God would say through Paul to the 
Romans is, I am not done with the nation of Israel. You think about Israel when they went into the land of Canaan. There were Hittites there. There were Amorites there. There were Canaanites there. There were Philistines there. There were all these other tribes that were in that area of Canaan that we call Israel today. I want to tell you, you can't find any Canaanites today. You can't find any Philistines today. You can't find any Amorites, Hittites, Girgashites, and Mosquito Bites. I don't know all the ites you want to put together. You won't find them in the nation of Israel. But Israel, God's people, are still there. God has a plan, and he's going to bring it to fulfillment. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 29. Now, if you jump down, and I read through verse 8 in our text. Look at it again. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they could not see and ears so they could not hear to this very day. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 4 to 6. I want, uh, and if you turn there with me, if you would, Deuteronomy 29. Let me give you the backdrop to this. Verses 4. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. During the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did your sandals on your feet. You ate no bread, drank no wine or other fermented drink, I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord, your God. Now, they, they stand right now on the brink of going into the promised land. They had been traveling around the wilderness for 40 years. They did that as an act of God's mercy and grace. Now, we don't look at it that way. We think God's punishing Israel because of their bad report. Remember, they sent 12 spies into the land. The majority report comes back. Ten spies say, we can't take the land. The giants are too big for us. Two, the minority, said, we serve a God who's big, huge, enormous. All things are possible through God. They chose to believe the majority report. God sends Israel traveling for the next 40 years till that generation would die off before he would go in and possess the land. I tell you, that is an act of grace. Why? Because God has to have a remnant people. In order for him to have a remnant, the others had to be dealt with. And he separates the remnants from those who are against God. Now, here's what I want to share with you. God doesn't need a majority report to win. One plus God's a majority. I don't care what the odds are and what the numbers are and what it may look like. It's a majority with God. And so they would go in and possess the land. Even though Israel rejected God, now he goes on the rest of this chapter and says, now God has extended his grace to the Gentiles. That's where you and I come in. Pick it up with verse number 17. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root, do not boast over those branches if you too consider this. Do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. 
Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also would be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into the cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, Paul goes back to a lesson from horticulture. And what you could do is you could take a strong, healthy root, you could cut off a weaker root, and you could graft it into the stronger root, and that would bring to produce fruit. It would grow, produce fruit. It would take its strength and nourishment from the root. He says, Gentiles are wild olive branches. They look good. They're strong. They're vital. They're healthy, but they bear no fruit. They don't get very tall. They don't get very large. The, the Jewish people were God's chosen people, set apart from, by, by God, given the law, given the commandments, were his select people, given a land to live in. He says, you were the natural branches, but you were cut out to make room so the wild branches could be grafted in. But he says, don't worry about Israel. God in his time, when the fullness of the Gentiles takes place, he will come back in and bring the natural branches back in, the cultivated branches back in, and bring them back into the taproot as well. God is not done with Israel. He has a plan for Israel. But it was an incredible act of grace. Even in the cutting away of Israel, it allowed all of us, all the Gentiles to come back in and be grafted into the Lord Jesus Christ. Incredible. Now, here's the lesson. He says, you Gentiles, don't get cocky. Don't think because you're the church and you've been brought in and you're a part of the family of God, don't get cocky. He says, if he cut away the natural branch, he can do the same to us. If we rebel against him, turn our back on him. He said, if God grafts us in, he uses these three words, how much more will he graft the original branches back in? God is not finished with Israel. The key word for us this morning is humility. He says, don't be arrogant, don't be proud. We've been included in the natural branch by grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. Anybody who's saved can't be boastful and proud and cocky and say, look what I've done, look at me. It is all by the grace of Almighty God. But the incredible thing is now I am a part of God's present plan. I am also now a part of God's future plans and all the plans he had for the nation of Israel. Now I am included in every single one of those plans. And every promise he made is a promise now that I can accept for myself. That's why he says those who have faith are the true children of Abraham. And so those of faith are all part of Abraham's seed. Therefore, we are all part of God's eternal divine plan. That's pretty exciting. Now, now, now here's the promise. The promise is I will one day bring Israel back. 
what I want to tell you is simply this. God keeps his promises. He shows us that through the example of himself, through the example of Elijah, through the example of the children of Israel in the wilderness on the brink of going into the promised land. God will keep his promise. Now, God has promises for every one of us today. And I want to read some of those to you. Turn to Jeremiah 29 or look at the screen. God's talking to the nation of Israel. But because I've been grafted in, I can claim this promise for myself. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and plans to give you a future. That was spoken to Israel in their captivity. Jeremiah prophesied to them. But what's happened? I've been grafted in to the root. So now every promise I can claim as well, and I can say God has plans for me. God has plans to take care of me. God has a hope and a future. That's why when somebody's going through a tough time, a trial or a test, I say, you know what? God's got something good in store for you. God is faithful. God will keep his promises. Look at Matthew, the promise of rest. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's a promise that God has for us, that in Christ Jesus I can find that Sabbath rest. God has a promise of provision. How many have heard this one before? My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I have a promise that God will be my provider. John 14, 7, I have a promise of peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. I do not give it to you as the world gives it. Do not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I want to tell you, God has a promise of peace for you today. You're agitated. You're worried. You're anxious about tomorrow. God's peace, let that be your strength today. The promise in John 14, God said he would send the comforter to us. He says, if you love me, verse 15, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives in you. He lives with you and will be in you. We have a comforter today. When God left, he did not leave us comfortless. He says, I will send to you another comforter, one who glums along beside of you in any situation, any trial, any trust. And then the greatest promise is that of everlasting life, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's been estimated there are five, over 5,000 promises in the word of God. Isn't that great? And if God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. And he will keep his promise to you and for us. And the third lesson from this chapter is simply this. God will not withdraw his promise. And I want you to jump down to the end of this chapter. Look at verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may, all, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. 
And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And as for the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his cause are irrevocable. Isn't that incredible? He says, Israel one day will come back. When the fullness of the Gentiles has occurred, Israel's coming back in. Now, you say, when is that going to happen? We've been praying for Israel for a long time. For the most part, they are still in darkness. Now, there are many Messianic Jews. There are many Jews across the, around the world that have come to find Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, and they are now a part of his faithful remnant. Uh, but he seems to describe a larger, greater, sweeping revival. When will that occur? I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. I believe there was a prophetic time that was indicated when Israel would return to God. They would mourn for the uh, realizing in Mr. Messiah, and I believe it ties in with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Zechariah 10 and verse 12 and verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. They will look on me whom they have pierced, Jump down to verse chapter 13 and verse 1. And on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their impurity and from their sin. There is coming that day. I believe that there is going to come a day when Jesus Christ returns. He gathers his bride, his church, unto him. That Israel will realize they had missed their Messiah. There is described in the book of Revelation, the ceiling of 144,000. They are described as coming out of every single tribe, 12,000 out of each and every tribe, and they will become witnesses throughout the earth during a time of the outpouring of God's wrath. I don't have time to go into all that today, simply to say God is not done with Israel, and that's what he's trying to get across in Romans chapter 11. Some say the church has replaced Israel. This could not be because he's describing two kind of branches, one that is wild that's been grafted in, one that's been cut away, but he says that branch that was cut away will come back in. And God's judgment or God's correction or discipline of the nation of Israel allowed God in his grace to welcome all the Gentiles in, and now we are saved by grace today. That's the message of Romans chapter 11. In the meantime, we, his church, have a responsibility to steward that grace of God to everybody we see. And just as the Jewish nation was called to be a light to all the rest of the nations, and they failed in that mission, uh, let not the church of the living God fail in the mission of being a light to the rest of the world. We've got to be witnesses in our streets, in our neighborhoods, around the world, wherever we go. We are called to be lights of God's incredible great grace. It says in Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And whom has been trusted much of him, they will ask all the more. And hasn't God been good to us? God has been so good. So good to us. And in spite of all of our failures and all of our shortcomings, for both Jews and Gentiles, God will keep his promises. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
I want you to jump down to verse 33, and I want you to hear these words. I want you to let them soak in this morning. Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever said to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now look at those last verse and those last three phrases. From him. Everything has its source in God. Through him. God is the sustainer of all life and all things. And everything works according to his eternal purposes. And to him. The purpose is we exist for God's glory and God's praise and God's honor. Now that's how Paul ends this incredible chapter. Now listen to me. That includes your current situation. And there are things in this life you will not be able to figure out. How unsearchable is the mind of God. We can't figure out why we get a promotion. And I can't figure out why I lost my job. We can't figure out the glory of God's creation when a new child is born and we see that baby born and the excitement of life. And we can't figure out why those we love die and are taken from us. We can't figure it out. How unsearchable is the mind of God. But he says in that last verse, all things will work together for the glory of God. So instead of trying to find answers... uh, Paul says, praise me, worship me, glorify me, exalt me. It's about God. It's not about us. And in the end, all those things we couldn't understand, all those things we couldn't figure out, it'll all come together according to God's plan and God's purposes. Worship him now. He is God, and I am not. Let's say that together. He is God, and I am not. He's God, and I am not. So what's our takeaway today? God will keep his promises. God keeps his word. Maybe God has spoken a promise to your heart. Maybe he said he's going to heal you. Maybe he said he's going to put your family back together again. Maybe he's told you he's going to save your kids and they're going to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given you a promise in some way, some shape, some form, and it may not have been fulfilled now, my first word to you is don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop believing. Don't stop trusting in God. Worship Him and believe that in time, God's promise will be fulfilled. If you need healing today, believe God, trust God. God is merciful and gracious. He will fulfill His promises. But he left a promise for every one of us. And the promise is this, I will return. And if the promise isn't fulfilled on this side of glory, it will be fulfilled on the other side. When there'll be no more sickness, and there'll be no more death, and there'll be no more separation, and there'll be no more pain, that promise will be fulfilled. Maybe not in my earthly lifetime, but it will be fulfilled in my eternal lifetime. God's promise will come.
come to pass. He said, I will return. General George MacArthur was on the Philippines. He was there with 90,000 allied troops, mostly American troops and other allied forces and working with the island people. He got the call from the then President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he said, we're losing the Philippines. It's time to leave. And so they whisked General MacArthur out of there. He left 90,000 American and Filipino troops lacking food, lacking supplies, lacking support, the Japanese offensive. Shortly after MacArthur left, Japan overran those islands. They took 70,000 people on a death march. 7,000 died on the march alone. They took 15,000 extra prisoners. And they flew MacArthur. He eventually made it to Australia, and he waited there. But he makes this statement. He told those who he was with, and he told the press and everybody who would hear him. He says, I shall return. Two and a half years later, after the tide of the war began to turn, General MacArthur lands on the island of Leyte. And he goes on, he would begin to go through the island of the Philippines and he would liberate those who were left still on that island. But he did return and he did keep his word. I read a story in the word of God when Jesus Christ gets his disciples together. And it says in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, they're they're gathered around. He says, when the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While you're reclining at the table, he said to them, Truly I tell you, one of you shall betray me, the one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. The one said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It's one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me, the Son of Man, is, will go just as is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him had he not been born. In other words, it's, it's time to leave the island. He's getting ready to leave. He's getting ready to leave the planet. He's going to be taken away. He's going away. His disciples are upset. One's going to betray him. It looks like the tide is going to turn and the enemy's going to win. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat. This is my body, broken for you. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it and said, This is the blood of the covenant that was poured out for many. And he said to them, Truly, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Listen, the one promise we can hang on to, maybe more than any others, is God is coming back. And this world is not all there is. And I will return. And every time we take a wafer in our hand and every time we take a cup in our hand and we eat that wafer and we drink that cup, let it be a reminder that God keeps his promises and by his stripes I am healed. Uh, Let it be a reminder that one day Jesus Christ is coming back and I'm going to eat with him uh, in his table in his heavenly kingdom. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.